0: Welcome to Invisible and On Stage, a podcast series hosted to you by me, Dr. Kiyasha Worthy, staff psychologist at Columbia Health Counseling and Psychological Services. Please remember that although the podcast is intended to provide support, it is not a replacement for psychotherapy. If you are interested in counseling services and are a Columbia University student on Morningside Campus, Please contact CPS at 212-854-2878. Today's episode is on developing compassion in places where you don't see yourself. I am joined by one of my good friends, Brents Purnell. (laughs) (laughs) Brents is currently the assistant general counsel at MDRC, a social policy firm aimed at improving public education and the lives of poor people. Brent studied at Duke University and then went on to obtain his master's in education at Harvard. And after that, he he worked for a few years and then went on to NYU School of Law. After law school, he clerked for two years and then went on to litigate at a law firm here in New York. So maybe we could just start off with sharing Like how we know each other? Do you want to share that story or should I?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, I think it's pretty special because uh, Kiyasha and I actually go way back to um, elementary school. We were both uh, growing up in a small town, Blackville, South Carolina. Um, We were in the same classes in elementary school uh, up until about third or fourth grade until Kiyasha left us. (laughs) Um, and went on to go do her own thing and uh, carry out her own uh, accomplished career. Um, And so what was it, like last year?
0: Yep, last year.
1: Last year, um, we coincidentally found out that we lived just a few blocks from each other here in Harlem, New York, all the way from Blackville, South Carolina, and um, rekindled a friendship, and it's been beautiful since so yeah. it's pretty special.
0: It is really special.
1: Um, but, you know, to your credit and to your point about networking, um, I think we, we found out that we live close to each other based on LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so you, and you reached out and then I was really happy and excited to find out that you were here in Harlem. Yes. Yes. Small world.
0: Small world. Um, but I, I feel like I, I had to start with someone who's from home. I wanted the first episode to be about compassion, given the fact that 2020 has been a particularly hard year for my black and brown people. Um, it wasn't the fact that it opened our eyes up. I think it opened the rest of the world's eyes up to, you know, the the longstanding social disparities and injustices that black and brown people face. But I'm also thinking about not just that, but, you know, COVID-19 and how black and brown communities are being diagnosed at a disproportionate higher rate, right? Um, This is seen in higher rates of hospitalization, infections, and mortality rates. Again, I can speak for myself. I felt like living in a pandemic, I had to just really sit with my feelings, sit with my thoughts, but also witness, you know, these these killings, these murders on TV and you know, I'm not on social media and I'm thankful for that, but sometimes it's hard to separate our identities and now put on the student hat, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to go back and, you know, perform well while you're also dealing with your blackness and how other people view you. So, yeah. compassion for me I think is um a key ingredient, I think, for healing um for ourselves. And even for, you know, when um, for certain students who are on these PWI campuses. So Dr. Kristen Neff is someone who's done a lot of work in self-compassion, and she defines it as an attitude that is relevant to every personal experience of suffering. And that entails three interacting components, self-kindness versus self-judgment, a sense of common humanity versus isolation and mindfulness Versus over-identification. And so she goes on and talks about these three components. But I do want to bring it back to you, Brent, and ask you, like, what does compassion or self-compassion mean to you? And how do you show it in your work, with your friends, with peers?
1: Yeah. Well, I think for for me, uh, at its core, it's about our ability to be able to see ourselves in others. Um, and I think that that... Uh, that ability to, to see the, the commonality, I think, uh, is important. Um, especially I think across, uh, class lines, uh, lines of race, um, uh, other, other lines, uh, about identity. I think our inability to do so, I think is the source of so much of, uh, bigotry and hatred and oppression in the world. And so, um, and that's not to say that's not to say it's easy. Uh, um, Compassion—that is, exercising compassion—but um, I do think it's it's important. Um, and I think depending on the context, uh, the responsibility uh, to show or exercise compassion um, is, you know, stems from stems from um, stems from like a a, a large historical. Context that's not to be ignored, and so um, when we think about traditionally folks who've been in power and folks who've not, um, I think that this obligation to uh, find and demonstrate compassion shows up a little different.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you had any challenges this year with being compassionate towards the oppressor? Or just you know, I I find myself, and I've heard this from a few people too, just like you know, after thing that you know, happen over the summer, people are like, you know, they're still killing us. Mm -hmm. Right. And really struggling with being compassionate towards their, their white peers or friends. Did -hmm. did that ever come up for you?
1: Well, so I can answer this in a few different parts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the first thing I should acknowledge is that, so my mother is, uh, white. Um, and, uh, you know, for my life, my whole life, I've identified as a black man with a white mother, Um, and I think you could probably speak to this as well, uh, for the short time that you spent in South Carolina, but also in the time that you spent in the, in other parts of the South is that I think growing up around, um, poor white people
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) is,
1: is a very different kind of experience. And so, um, there were many times in my life uh where i it was easier for me to connect with and or empathize with poor white people given where i came from um more so than the uh the white people I, you know i was regularly encountering at yeah. pwis and, and other professional spaces and so um so i think it co- that colors pun intended <laughs> my experience <laughs> um in in some ways and so i think uh Specifically, I think it's allowed for me to, uh, I think even if I, uh, am struggling, if I feel torn, if I feel angry, I think there is sort of still this underlying muscle of mine, if you will, um, to connect with and identify with some of the experiences of poor white people, even if just from a class perspective. Um, and so, uh, So yeah, I just, I wanted to acknowledge that. And I think that that, of course, connects to, to my own racial background, um, and family members I have. But I will say, I think that, um, I recognize that it, you know, we can, we have so much energy, um, and the, the muscle to exercise compassion, I think can be exercised and built but so much. And as for me, I think my, my, uh, I, I've, aim to focus my efforts more on, um, having compassion for other people in the black community, Mm -hmm. uh, my family members and my friends. And that's not to say, you know, trying to find ways to extend compassion, um, to, uh, folks who've traditionally been in power or white people or whoever that may be, uh, depending on the, the, the struggle. Um, but it's not energy that I necessarily have. Um, And it's not anything that I'm, um, especially patient in, in doing. And so, uh, I leave that exercise of compassion to other folks. Um, I think for me, the focus has been more so on finding ways to uh, show compassion to, to to people who who look like me.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, I didn't I didn't get into all of. All that you've done in your career. Do you mind sharing with people just, you know, I shared a little bit about your educational experience, but I think the students could benefit from knowing about like, you know, what you do as a career. What did you do after you graduate?
1: Sure. So um, so Kiyasha mentioned I I, I went to to Duke. Uh, Duke was one of three schools I applied to. uh, Just three? Just three. Um, You know, I know people who look like me and who came from Blackville, South Uh Carolina, didn't go to schools like Duke. And so I applied to two schools in South Carolina and Duke Mm -hmm. was Duke was my reach school. And I was really excited and thrilled to be able to go there. Um, Struggled terribly my first academic semester um, and then found my groove and um, soared from there. And it was great. And I had a wonderful Duke experience. Um, But. I knew, you know, speaking of compassion, that I wanted to have a career that was about service to others, uh, just based on my own educational experience in rural, black, rural South Carolina. And so, um, you know, I thought that might look like teaching. Um, I thought it might look like being a lawyer and doing advocacy work. Um, And so... Basically, I tried to do all of those things, and so, <laughs> so I went to graduate school afterwards uh, to get a master's in education, and then taught for three years after that, um, including uh, a year in South Carolina. I went back home to South Carolina and taught um, in a context very similar to to Blackville. Okay, and then um, went to law school to try to find a way to weave my interests in race, uh, education, and the law. And so uh, I went to NYU. Uh, and then I clerked for uh, federal judges for a few years thereafter, um, and then worked for a year at a big law firm here in New York uh, just to get some experience, um, and also just to bide my time until I can sort of find the work in the nonprofit or, mm-hmm. nonprofit or public sector space that um, that I that I really wanted, and that came about through through MDRC. Um. So uh, that's that's where I currently am, and um, the the beautiful part of it is that in the last year I've gotten to it's been a complete circle, and I'm back in the in the classroom, <laughs> um, teaching as an adjunct at a few law schools here here in New York, um, and it's been great. I've, I've been having a great time.
0: Good, good, good. Wow, so much for a young man. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know we're not too young. <laughs> young spirit. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I
0: I do want to ask what was the biggest challenge you mentioned the first semester at Duke?
1: Oh, oh boy. Um you know the big thing, you know this is and this is what I mean on the class issue okay. is that I I just felt like I there was no one who knew where I came from. Um and it 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 was just uh you know the black students um many of whom I'm I'm still friends with, uh, for the most part, not all of them, for the most part, um, came from especially privileged backgrounds. Um, you know, they were talking about, you know, their summer homes and their parents being doctors and lawyers. And, um, you know, my parents barely had a college education, you know, they got like an associate's degree. Um, um, and so it was just a completely different experience and um and created some i think difficulties for me in terms of me feeling like I was smart enough to be there um whether I belonged there, whether I was wealthy enough to be there um you know i if you you would look at the student parking lot and you know I remember my red ninety one Ford Explorer <laughs> that I'd driven all through high school and then after that, it's just like lines of BMWs that the other first year students, these are wow. like 18, 17, 18 year olds. Um, and I remember my parents dropped me off and they saw all of those cars and they just shook their head and it was like, <laughs> we don't know what, <laughs> what this is about to be for you. But hey, um, yeah. And I, and I, 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 cried home. I was like, mom, I think, uh, you know, I'm just not smart enough to do this. I think I need to just go ahead and transfer to Clemson or USC. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of embarrassing myself. Now, mind you, this was despite the fact that I had gotten a full scholarship to Duke. Um, none of that mattered to me. Um, I felt I still didn't feel like that was enough to demonstrate that I was smart enough to be there, that I belonged there. Um, and you know, I was just really psyching myself out. Uh, and to my father's credit, you know, he's he told me you're going to stay right there and you're going to stick right. it out. Um, and I mean, the other two smaller things is that I was also this is the first time in my life that I was challenged and that I had to accept the fact that I wasn't the best at everything. Um, you
0: graduated valedictorian.
1: I did, but you know, of a, of a, of it a class of matter, 53, you, you know, and so <laughs> <laughs> you know, really small, but I, I was not used to being challenged. Um, and, and I think this was the first time that I, my, my worldview, um, was really being challenged in, in, and I think really ultimately, uh, really productive ways, uh, which I now appreciate. Um, but that was a. One of the things, but the other thing that I think gave me, um, problems was the fact that I was not being myself. I showed up at Duke, like, I think 90% of the first year students wanting to be a doctor, even though I had no interest (laughs) in being a doctor. I just thought that that's what success looked like. You know,
0: I see that all the time. (laughs) It's
1: right. I imagine you do. Um, and so as soon as I realized that that's, this is not what you want to do. Um, my experience completely changed, um, and in the process of that, I did meet someone who was from Orangeburg, South Carolina, who I accidentally discovered. And my, that also helped tremendously. One of the few who'd also, um, made it to Duke and from a very similar environment as mine. And I was just so, I felt so blessed to have been able to connect with her. Um, my guard came down so much. My my mother called her and thanked her and she's like, you changed my son's career. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just because I needed a friend, honestly, who came from a background that was like, mine.
0: you know, I think what you're talking about with that first semester sounds like imposter syndrome, which I hear absolutely, you know, that's just I think it's common <laughs> for especially black people. But black students, you know, when they are feeling challenged, they're feeling out of place Right to second guess themselves, even though you had the scholarship that right. proved that you deserve to be there, but right. you still second guessed yourself. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I I do notice because we we're talking about compassion that you were able to kind of bring it back to yourself and show compassion towards yourself. And I think your friend helped you with that, like finding who you really are, what you want to do. Um, I always tell like you know the students that I work with like community is so important, especially when you're feeling alone. It's nice to have someone. So law school was a breeze.
1: No, it, you know, why? Law?
0: So first <laughs> of all, because I, I think a lot of, you know, just I'm trying to speak on behalf of the students that I've, you know, worked with or encountered and or just people in general. Um, a question that I get often was like, how did you know like this? Like, I, how did I how did you know that you wanted to get a Ph.D.? Mm-hmm, like, I know part mm-hmm. of it is like you wanted to give service to give back. Um, But how did you know that education, a master's in education, wasn't enough that you had to go into this other route?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, I can answer that question first. I think it's a I think it's a good one and especially useful for. For students, I. I think I was taking it sort of one experience at a time And, and in Duke at Duke, I felt especially passionate about education. So. I d I wasn't entirely sure what I'd do after that, but I knew before I did anything I wanted to teach and so um so yeah i i I also knew however um that I wanted to be a good teacher, and so i I felt like further academic preparation would be mm-hmm. useful for that, but if we're being honest, I also <laughs> recognize that um, there are certain names that carry weight um, in the in the professional community. And so um, it became clear to me that Harvard was one of those <laughs> names uh, as it related to to graduate schools of education. And so I um, and I was fortunate enough to to win a, a fellowship to help pay for that. And so um, so, yeah, I I was at Harvard and then I taught for several years. But, you know, it was while I was at Harvard that I realized that um, I think the kind of impact I wanted to have, it felt like a, a law degree was more conducive to that than another professional degree. I considered, you know, uh, in it, uh, like a, an EDD or a PhD in education or sociology or something that would allow me to study educational systems. Um, but I, I think I wanted more, um, I wanted a more uh, immediate Impact. Um, I wanted to be able to file lawsuits <laughs> <laughs> um, out of anger and frustration um, to to remedy what I thought were you know pretty severe injustices mm-hmm. in our school systems. Um, and so, uh, granted, I am not a litigator now, um, but that's what informed my initial desire to want to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And so, and to your earlier question um you know law school was not a breeze uh so i get to <laughs> nyu and i i'm there with a duke degree with the harvard degree with teaching experience and imposter syndrome is there just as strong as ever yep. and i think what i've come to understand is that it just doesn't go away it does not it does not go away i sit in front of my students um still feel it you know, (laughs) Um, like I don't, you know, they're going to find me out. They know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, And I think to, you know, I think to your, and to the, to the first, very first question, you know, what, what we want to discuss here is as it relates to compassion. I mean, I think that's one of been one of the big lessons for me is that I've been disappointed in myself over time. Sometimes that, I still wrestle with imposter syndrome. I felt like it's so much energy expended that could be, (laughs) you know, it, it just, it it creates stress. Uh, I could be using it to, you know, experience and feel joy and peace, peace of mind. Um, but I don't. And I think from the point of compassion is that it's okay if this never goes away, um, And and that doesn't say anything about you or work that you need to do. Um, And that, in fact, um, most people experience this. It's not just, you know, people of color. Um, It's also, you know, as you spoke about, women feel it. Um, Even a lot of, uh, you you know, your your traditional straight white men feel it. And oftentimes a lot of the, you know, the... (laughs) a lot of the behavior you see exhibited on their part um, is sort of overcompensation because they feel like they, you know. And so um, this is one of the things that unites us, that unites us as as, as humans is that we're all struggling with this. And I think that that helps me, it relieves the stress a lot. Um, It's like we're all sort of struggling with wanting to belong and feeling like we don't belong or don't deserve to be where we are.
0: Yeah, I think that also goes back to when you said you were able to connect with the poor white people, just based on like those circumstances, mm-hmm. like you could provide compassion towards them because mm-hmm. you have the shared experience. But that also relates to this imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Like where at least in, in my work as a therapist, um, I can be frank, you know, like, you know, it's yes, a, a huge part of the work is about relationships. And so I hear a lot of different things, but it's about finding, even if you can't connect with the person, right. It's about finding that one thing that you can empathize with them, right. Like whether it's, you know, being lonely or being, um, feeling really down, feeling hopeless, or just having this imposter syndrome. Like that's something that we all share that we all struggle with. And I think like what you mentioned is just being able to be kind to yourself and normalize it. I Mm -hmm. think that's just the huge thing with imposter syndrome. Like everyone feels this, Mm -hmm. um, all people feel it all genders all you know all races we all struggle with it but it's something and I know we're jumping into a new topic here but I do, I do think it's relevant to um just the trajectory of like you know your stu- your experience as a student and it also just relates to my experience cuz I remember um, before we started, we were talking about like, oh, how can I say this? And you was like, see, see, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you know, I was nervous and feeling like, you know, am I going to be good enough for this? Mm-hmm. And stayed, you know, prepared all week, all yesterday. Um, But you're right. Like, I think we all at some point feel like imposters. Yeah. I've learned to accept it and just kind of move on. But that's the way I show compassion towards myself, just kind of validate you know, it's coming up for me, but here's all these things that I've done. At the end of the day, I still work at Columbia and I'm like,
1: that's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I thought the, one of the best ways that I thought um, I read about sort of dealing with it is treating it as like a guest at a dinner table. Oh, I like that. And it's like, hi, imposter syndrome. I see you. You can have a seat. Now you're <laughs> not going to dominate the conversation, but I recognize you're there and yes. I'm not going to pretend like you aren't there. But there are other um, affirming and productive emotions also mm-hmm. at the table. And I'm going to focus my time and attention on that. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, we, I've accepted that. It's, it's sitting at a lot of people's dinner tables. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's probably sitting with us right now.
0: <laughs> we see you, imposters syndrome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So my next question, and um, do you – I guess this is more related to racism-related stress. And I think this ties into being able to, whether that be show compassion towards yourself or to other people. Do you think is, well, first, have you ever experienced any racism-related stress?
1: I'm sure I have. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm sure I have. Um, you know, the the reason I answer it in that way is because I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that... Uh, we are probably all all of society, I think, is experiencing some mm-hmm. some sort of stress related to ra- racism, whether it be on the inflicting end or on the receiving end. Um, you know, Brian Steven, who was my professor in law school and one of my professional crushes, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he describes it as sort of like smog in the air. Mm. Um, that affects us all, whether we realize uh, how how it's affecting us or not, um, even if it's not entirely visible. And so, um, so yeah, I think it affects all of us. Um, Now, in terms of specific instances that I face, uh, sure. I mean, I'm sure it's come about. Um, I think that it's been interesting in my, my career uh, and that I feel like we are of the generation where, you know, racism shows up and I think in a lot more uh, subtle and sophisticated ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the stressful parts about racism is that trying to convince ourselves that it was because of racism, absent any knowledge that it was like explicit discrimination. I feel like snapping right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you want, you're like winding yourself up wondering like, well, was this related to race? And you know, you, you're feeling crazy. Um, because, again, no one said anything directly mm-hmm. or did anything directly. Um, but, yeah, I can I can think of several instances, um, both more individual based and systemic that I thought was uh, contributing to, you know, to ultimately maintaining a system of mm-hmm. white supremacy. And so I'm sure we all can think of, yeah. you know, instances to that effect.
0: What would be your advice for students who are experiencing this on campus or in classes, especially Um, maybe they're noticing it through Zoom, right, where Mm -hmm. people just kind of shut off their cameras when they speak or aren't giving them eye contact or just kind of, um, I guess, doing these more subtle gestures of just kind of looking away or being distracted or just what would be your advice for students?
1: Well, you know, one of the things I think – I wished, well, how do I frame it? One of the things I think I wish I took more advantage of is what it meant to have black professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, coming from where we've spoken about where I come from in South Carolina, I, I did get to Duke I thought professors were gods. I thought they were like untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that for that reason i both I both worked really hard to try and impress them, but also was really intimidated by the idea of trying to get to know them on a more personal level and um now granted i you know I only teach I teach as a, as an adjunct, but i I will say that on the other side of it, you know leading a classroom at a university um, professors are just, they're human. (laughs) They're human. And I think um, black professors or black teachers or lecturers or whatever, I think are oftentimes um, very sort of open and excited by the prospect of having these kinds of conversations with students and wanting to support them in this way. And so um, now we can also talk about how I think, uh, you know, black professors and teachers in university spaces oftentimes feel uh, overwhelmed when they're one of the few mm-hmm. at these mm-hmm. institutions. I was and, just having this <laughs> conversation with a colleague. And all of the, you know, yes. black students or uh, other students are reaching out to them for mentorship and or support. Um, you know, I don't We talk about sustainability issues. Sure. But yeah. Um, I, ideally, you know, there would be enough uh, black teachers uh, on university campuses who could help support students in that way. And I think the reason I think is it was especially um, when it did happen informally, um, I thought and it happened, I think, much more, I think, later in my career than than early on at Duke. Um, I was just It was just nice to have someone who was in a position of power who recognized what I was going through. And even if they didn't ultimately have the solutions about what there was to be done, um, you felt affirmed in your experience. And I mean, I think going back to earlier what you what you were saying um, or what we were talking about, it's like. At least in the end, you didn't, you knew you weren't crazy. Like yeah. you weren't making this up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, there can be a lot of stress just related to that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, in my, my, the latter stages of my career, it's been very affirming to hear, um, from, uh, black lawyers or black professors who talk about the experiences they still face mm-hmm. in these institutions. And so, um, or the imposter syndrome they still have yeah. and, um, that's always been very affirming for me Um, because I, I situate that with the success that they've ultimately had and recognize that, okay, it happens. Um, And I feel affirmed, affirmed in my feelings about this happening to me, but it doesn't necessarily dictate my success.
0: Right, but it's something, I don't know if you ever felt this way, but it's like sometimes I want it to be over, right? Yeah. Like I want it to, I don't want to feel black or feel invisible as it goes back to like my title, right? You would think that I know like you know, talking to my mentor and I'm like, do you still feel this way? Do you still have these struggles? And she's like, Yes, I do. Mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. like, this will never <laughs> go away, you know? Um and I think that's the especially for younger students, um I think that's the the biggest challenge for them to accept. I think acceptance is key. Like that you will always you know have these feelings like imposter syndrome feelings you will always um and I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, like I will always be seen as the black woman in the room mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um, and because of especially that identity in itself that brings on the feelings of imposter, right, yeah, um, but I try i guess going back to compassion, which is what this is <laughs> this episode is about, like I in my own experiences. I try to be thoughtful in what I say and how I communicate, Um, even in this experience when those, you know, as we mentioned, the imposter syndrome is here as a guest sitting with us, Mm -hmm. in Brent's example. (laughs) Um, And so I, I always try to be careful in how, again, like how I communicate myself, but also making sure like I'm comfortable and not being overly anxious as I was when I was like in graduate school. I think that was the first time I've had the experience that you shared with at Duke like mm-hmm. when I went to Seton Hall because mm-hmm. before then I was at uh, HBCUs.
1: Right. So, um, <laughs>
0: salem State University, I have to throw that in there. Okay. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so those experience your first semester, so you were like 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that experience until like 25, wow. 20, you know, so later on in life, definitely a culture shock. But, um, like those challenges, you know, it was it was a tough time for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really tough. And I I think about students in today, and I I, I have wondered about whether whether what being um, mostly or um, all virtual, how that's affected that dynamic mm-hmm. about being one of the few black bodies in the room because it's less. I've thought about whether it's less tangible now, um, whether because you are, you know, interacting um, so much over screen, um, maybe from home around, maybe around more people who look like you, yeah. whether it be roommates or family members or whatever, um, whether that's helped in some way, um, you know, mitigate against, I think, mm-hmm. some of that stress and maybe not. But, you know, I, I it what that was one of the more stressful parts for me. And I do feel it. A difference now, the organization I work for is predominantly white, and it does feel very different now <laughs> <laughs> not being in an office with surrounded mm. by uh, so many white bodies. Um, in terms of feeling you know like I'm the one, um, or you know, feelings about imposter syndrome coming about. I mean, it's definitely still there, even in just emailing back and forth, you of know, it course. doesn't need to be physical, but of um. I do wonder about how that's changing things. Or I think that's has. a
0: good question. I feel like I do speak up more in certain meetings mm-hmm. and it may have something to do with like this yes. comfort. Like my dog can come and, yeah. you know, I can pet <laughs> him while I'm talking. <laughs> right. Uh, I have this curveball for you. Oh, okay. All right. I call this segment Flash from the Past. hmm <laughs> All right. So I am going to read several prompts to you. The first one is like this or that. And then you choose. And so it's called flash from the past because I want you to think about like how you were as a student. Okay. okay? Then the second prompt is I'm going to uh, start a sentence and you're going to finish it. Okay. All right. So this is, you know, all about your the first part, again, is all about, you know, whether you this or that, you know, as a student. And then the other is what would you tell yourself? Okay Okay Are we ready? Yes So I have this fun music to
1: (laughs) Let's do it Oh I'm gonna cry Oh don't cry Bratz
0: Exams or essays? Essays Individual or group projects? Individual Study ahead or cram?
1: Study ahead
0: Oh look at you (laughs) Did I I study? This is about you I'm sorry Snapchat or Instagram? Instagram Books or movies? Books Night Owl or Early Bird? Early Bird. Follower or Leader?
1: Ooh, Fleeter.
0: Fleeter, I like that, I like that. On time or late? On time. Front or back of class? Back. Did you go out on Friday nights or did you stay in? Stayed in. Oh. So this is, I was trying to think about our, when we were in school who were popular. And so I couldn't really, I didn't know what kind of music you listened to, but Mm -hmm. here's something that comes up. Usher Chris Brown.
1: What'd you say? Usher or Chris Brown? Oh, Chris Brown.
0: Okay, okay. Texting or talking?
1: This is now or as a student? As a student. Ooh, talking. Talking. <laughs> so you're a texter now?
0: All the way. All, the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what would you tell your younger self if you were in school still, whether it be graduate or undergrad? Never forget to.
1: Um, devote at least one weekend day to work
0: be open to
1: meeting people who come from different backgrounds
0: and don't be afraid to
1: seek out mentorship and support from professors
0: awesome that was so perfect we finished we timed it (laughs) with the music i didn't even plan that
1: also i'm revising it's definitely usher not chris brown
0: why did you go back? Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> I realized I know so many more Usher songs than I do Chris Brown songs, yeah. especially back back then.
0: I used to have like a little mini crush on Chris Brown.
1: I've but. heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> i shared this with you before. You have. Oh, okay. oh man.
0: <laughs> um, all right. So let's just, you know, do you have any tips for students on, you know, students who may be struggling with self-compassion or or and or compassion towards other people? Like, what would be your advice?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, I I think it connects back to, to several of the things we've already discussed. Uh, I think one of the most important lessons I learned was that everyone, everyone is struggling with acceptance. And I think that that is manifesting in different ways um, and that in some ways we're sort of all coping um, in that way. And so, you know, you, you know, you think about the person who arrives with a very macho personality. Um, I think that's a form of coping or overcompensating. You think about the person who's really quiet in the corner of the classroom. Um, that's a form of coping. Um, and so I think the commonality is that we're all coping just in different ways. And I think that how we cope is just informed by our past experiences and traumas. And so, um, I find that very uh, – uh, to be of, of, of great relief because I think for for a while, I believe that some people just had life figured out and that they were just very confident and knew their way about the world. Um, and one can still be confident, I think, and still be coping. Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> and so um, I would say that. I think the second thing is just to um, – one of the there's a a psychologist at Stanford, uh, Carol Dweck, whose work, I think, in the education field really, I think, revolutionized my way of thinking about learning and teaching. Um, and she introduced these terms of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And she talks about how our research speaks to how um, what oftentimes account what can oftentimes account for the success of students is uh, that those students who are successful tend to view obstacles um, or frame obstacles or challenges um, as something that can be ultimately be mastered and it's not about um, having an innate ability which is what a lot of the fixed fixed intelligent mindset students tend to think that I'm just not good at math or I'm just not good at science or I'm just not good at sports. Um, but from a growth mindset perspective, it's just like, I'm not good at it now, but with enough practice, with, with enough diligence and hard work, even if I'm not the best at it, I can get better at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that approaching problems, uh, approaching intellectual tasks, um, trying to exercise that muscle more is like, I'm not good at it now, but I could be if yes. I wanted to be. And it's just about enough discipline, practice, and hard work to get there. Um I think that that's important um for for students to try to tap into more, and that it's not about you know just having natural abilities um necessarily that that lend themselves to being able to accomplish certain tasks or do mm-hmm. um, certain things
0: thanks it was you know <laughs> i'm I'm going to share a few of my tips um, The first one is to provide grace. I think maybe this is just kind of maybe from my spiritual identity i think sometimes we can be too hard on ourselves yeah. and i think we all could benefit from being more kind to ourselves giving ourselves more grace the other thing is just being more mindful um and that doesn't mean that we have to meditate It's just you know being more aware of our thoughts you know using our observing mind um and taking creating some distance with our th- from from our thoughts i think at least in my experiences, and I don't know, Brent, if, if you can relate sometimes when those like negative thoughts come, I can latch onto them and mm-hmm. I can spiral instead of, you know, creating some distance and saying like, hmm, I wonder why, I wonder why my mind is going in this direction. I wonder what, what these thoughts mean about me, about the situation, um, being more curious, to, like having more perspective. And I think if we can do that, we can start to not only have show compassion towards ourselves, but for other people, um, And the last thing is, you know, being patient. Right. We're, you know, um, many times people come to therapy and I always joke, it's like, I don't have a magic, a magic wand for you to get better after this session. You know, change takes time. I think um, we're going to face obstacles at various like at different stages in our lives, sometimes throughout the same year. Um, But just be patient to yourself and, you know, just going back to the, you know, being gracious or providing grace towards yourself. I think it a lot of times we don't treat ourselves as good as we treat other people. Mm -hmm. And so just turning that inwards would be my tip for being more compassionate. Did you have any last thoughts, Prince?
1: No, I thought that was um, I'm gonna find those tips myself.
0: Oh. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. Um, I'm so happy to to have you here. Um, I I share this with my mom all the time. My mom asks about you all the time too. Oh. By the way, she's like, "Have you seen Brand? Um. I'm like, <laughs> "Yes." Um, and shout out to my mom because she is the reason why we connected. She sent me a picture of us when we were like in first grade. Oh.
1: Thank you, Kiyasha. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you so much for offering up your time and spending it with me. If you are a Columbia University student on Morningside campus and today's episode left you feeling like you could benefit from talking more about this topic with an expert, please do not hesitate to call CPS at 212-854-2878.